0: we look at all the data, we see that there is hardly any area of work where we don't find both men and women. I think that's the most important result. There has often been a tendency to think that women and men did very different things and that women on the whole put in less work effort than men did. And often this is not really supported by any evidence. It's regarded as a sort of self-evident almost biological fact that that women have the responsibility for small children and that means that they cannot work so much. At the end of the day it's the husband that's the breadwinner. When we look at our data the only category where we don't really find women is military work. That in itself forces you to think again about these matters.
1: Welcome to S.C.A.S. Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Leer, and in this episode I talk to Maria Ogrien, professor in history at Uppsala University. She is an early modernist whose research interests are situated in the intersection of social history, economic history, and gender history. She has written about debt, iron production, inheritance, property, marriage, and work in the early modern world. She is the leader of the research project Gender and Work, which started in 2010 and is still ongoing. We will dive a bit deeper into this research project during our conversation. And this is the second episode within the theme Gender. Very welcome to SCAS Talks, Maria. Would you like to say a few words about yourself? Well, I am
0: Swedish. I'm professor of history, as you just said. I'm married. I have two grown-up children and actually a grandchild, too, since a year. Generally speaking, I'm, I'm interested in the ways in which society has an impact on people's lives and, on the other hand, how people's actual practices have an impact on society, and and that's why I often say that I, I work with the intersection of economic, social, legal, and gender history, because that is exactly where we look at this interplay between society and the individual.
1: Yes, interesting. It's nice that you talk about your family also, especially in this context. So very briefly then, you said a little bit about your research, but what have you been doing in your research career? What have you been looking at?
0: As a PhD student, I started working with the phenomenon of indebtedness in early modern societies, so in particular indebtedness among ordinary peasants in Sweden. And what I was interested in was whether it was dangerous, if you put it that way, dangerous to be indebted, uh, whether you could lose your property because of debts. And I discovered that this was not necessarily so in the... 17th and 18th centuries, but that at the beginning of the 19th century there were some legal reforms which uh, reinforced the position of the creditor, so the person who had a claim on the debtor, and in the same way it undermined or or made the position of the debtor uh, weaker. So that meant that it was from the beginning of the 19th century that you could say with certainty that being indebted was a risk factor if you were afraid of losing your property. So that was one of the main results of, of that book. And after that, I wrote a book about the legal entitlements to land. And in particular, I was very interested in a legal claim called ancient usage, which meant that you claim to own land simply because you had held it for such a long time without anyone complaining about your possession. And I wrote that book in 1997. And recently, just a couple of years ago, my results from that book turned out to be of some importance in a rather famous lawsuit between a Sámi community and the Swedish state. So that was a very interesting experience for me, too, that things that had a purely academic interest, for me turned out to be of great consequence to this Sámi community in particular. And further on in my career, I, I got more interested in gender aspects. I looked at marriage and how marriage worked in the early modern period, and not least, and here I came back to the role of credit, how credit and indebtedness affected the power relations within marriage. And then from around... 2005 onwards, I have worked primarily with questions to do with gender and work. So men's and women's work in early modern and also 19th century society. And uh, the studies we have done in Uppsala have mainly been about the Swedish situation, but we're also involved with scholars in other countries. So it's very much an international network collaboration, to increase knowledge about, in particular, women's work, of course, since so much less has been known about women's work. But as a matter of fact, the more you learn about women's work and develop new methods of investigating women's work, the more you realize, well, actually, we don't know for sure that much about ordinary men's work either. So that's what I've been doing for the last, well, nearly 20 years.
1: Yeah, we will talk about uh, your methods more today. Before we start with that, I usually ask the guests on this podcast how you got interested in what you're doing. So why did you start off all these projects that you did?
0: Well, it's difficult to really pin down why I got interested in what my dissertation was about. I mean, at that point in time, historians had recently discovered the usefulness of legal records, court records, and that they can be used for very many purposes. But most of the other historians around me, including my supervisor, they were interested in crime. But when I started reading court records from the early modern period, what struck me was that so much was not about crime. It was about disputes, disputes about property, inheritance, disputes between spouses within marriage, So that immediately made me realize that there is a wealth of information about people's social and economic conditions in these court records that we miss if we just focus on on the crimes that, of course, do turn up in the court records, but they do not in any way dominate the picture. So I think that, in connection then with my interest in credit and debt and, and whether they involved risk for people at the time, that made me interested in this type of source and doing new things with the legal records, so that on a very general level is why i I got interested in this, as I call the intersection of social and ec- economic and legal history. The reason why I got interested in gender and work was, well, I think simply that I realized that we don't know so much about it, and I think that's often the case with scholars, with researchers that we're sort of drawn to the dark areas that uh, have not been completely enlightened by previous research. Because, of course, you want to produce as much new knowledge as possible. So therefore, you you try to find the margins, the areas where, where there are still dark spots, so to say. So I was at a conference in Berlin, I think it was in 2004, and attended a session organized by a group of Dutch historians, and uh, they just started a a project called Women's Work in the Dutch Republic, I think. And at the same time, a scholar in Cambridge, Sheila Ogilvie, she'd written a book about women's work in uh, what is now Württemberg, Baden Württemberg, in southern Germany. This session with the Dutch historians and the book by Sheila Ogilvie made me realize that actually much of what has been written about women's work in Sweden is quite old, a bit outdated, and that it should be possible to attack these questions again. And of course, here too, I was thinking of the potential of the legal records, the court records. So that's how I got into the topic of gender and work.
1: With new material, you can get new knowledge.
0: Exactly. And I think here, something that is very important is that the technological development, if you like. I mean, that we now have access to sophisticated database technology makes it easier to, perhaps not easier to extract information from handwritten sources, but definitely easier to analyze the information, to put metadata on the information, and to store it in a way that makes it worthwhile. Because, of course, it's very time-consuming to use court records. And uh, it also requires that several scholars cooperate. So if, the fact that it's time consuming also means, of course, that it's expensive. But I think you can justify the cost if you store the information in new modern repositories or databases, because in that way, the information becomes reusable. So other historians, doesn't have to be historians necessarily, yeah. other people can, can use the information.
1: Yes, we will get back a little bit to all these practical issues around the data. But if we should start from the beginning with the project Gender and Work, what do you do? What are you looking at?
0: Well, what is characteristic of the Gender and Work project is that we use something we call the verb-oriented method. And the point of departure here is that we're, we're interested in what people were actually doing. So work as practice um what that means is that we're not primarily interested in what occupational titles people had. So it's not that kind of data that we are collecting. And the reason that we're not interested in occupational titles is, first of all, it would be a bad method if you're interested in women's work, because everyone knows already that women seldom had occupational titles. I mean, there were midwives and there were wet nurses, and a couple of other occupational titles. But other than that, women didn't have occupational titles, which of course doesn't mean that they didn't work. But the occupational titles were more tied to the things men did. Although even for men, an occupational title in this period could be very deceptive. And that has to do with the role of multiple employments. So even if a man had the occupational Title peasant or farmer, it doesn't mean that he devoted all his time to agriculture or animal husbandry. Maybe he was primarily a, a fisher or a tradesman. So, for several reasons, occupational titles is something we have chosen not to look at. And we have decided not to look at whether people were paid for their work and what they were paid for the simple reason that a lot of work in this period was unpaid, or payment was deferred, or it's very common for an employer to be indebted to his workforce because there was not enough money around. So, well, the payment was deferred. So we decided to, and here we were inspired by Srila we decided to search court records for information about what people were actually doing. And here we come to the verbs, because Of course, a court protocol, a court record, is a text. And in a text, it is the job of verbs to describe what people do. And of course, not all verbs describe work. There are other verbs like to sleep is a verb, but it's not uh, a form of work. And to eat is a verb, and it's not a form of work. But actually, a very large share of what people were doing in the early modern period somehow had to do with survival. So therefore, it makes sense to collect information in the form of verb phrases that describe people's sustenance activities. And often, this information comes in incidental form. That is to say, it's a coincidence, more or less, that it's mentioned in the court protocol. So, for instance, a witness might appear in front of court, and what the court is interested in is whether, well, what the witness can say about a certain crime, say a manslaughter But often witnesses mention in passing what they were doing when they made the observation that is of interest to the court. So maybe a woman will say, well, I was knitting and um, watching over my child when I observed how he hit the other man on the head or something like that. And this is a very good example of incidental information. The court was not interested, of course, in her knitting or watching over her baby. They were interested in what she saw. But very often, witnesses tend to give that kind of information in passing. Or if the court is interested in an alibi, well, then, of course, a person has an interest in emphasizing what he or she was doing at a certain point in time. So surprisingly often, you can extract a lot of information about people's actual work activities, their practices from the court records and then we put this in this tailor-made database that we have with time collecting lots and lots of verb phrases like this. Now we have more than 40,000 verb phrases and they're all linked to an individual. We also have information about these individuals, whether it was a man or a woman, a grown-up or a child, someone who was married or not. So that means then that we can sort the verb phrases and look at patterns in this big material and what was characteristic of what women did, of what men did, etc.
1: Interesting. It's a very smart method, I think. You you really filter out the activities. What time period are you looking at?
0: We started out with a five-year project when we looked at the period 1550 to 1799, so that's really the early modern period collecting information from many places all over Sweden, including Finland, that was part of Sweden at the time. And then, based on some of the lessons from this first phase of the project, we started the second phase, which looks at a much more limited area, and the period is 1720 to 1880. And the reason why we have a slightly different approach in this second phase has two reasons. One reason is that we're interested to see whether we can map any change, because that's what you would expect to see changes in people's work patterns as we move into the 19th century with the agrarian revolution and, and industrialization, etc., etc. So that's interesting whether we can capture change in this period. And the other reason why we've moved a little forward in time has to do with the fact that we discovered in the first phase that for women it was very clearly the case that what was important was whether they were married or not. So married women, their repertoires of work were more similar to married men than to unmarried women, which suggested then that at least for women marital status was at least as important, if not more important, than gender since Married people, whether male or female, had more similar patterns than unmarried women and married women. But we had too little information on men's marital status. So it proved necessary to extract information about men's marital status from other sources because this information was seldom given in the court records. So we had to check with the ecclesiastical sources and that is very time-consuming, so we decided to work with a smaller geographic area and also move forward in time because the further ahead in time you get, the better the information is on marital status for both sexes. And this is the phase that we are currently just about to to finish, and then th- there will be a third phase within the GOV project. And in this phase we will look at very different types of economies. So we're planning to look at an area in northern Sweden where there's a Sami population to see whether ethnicity is an important factor here. And we're also hoping to get PhD students who can work with other parts of Europe, so leaving the Swedish, Swedish realm and perhaps look at a Mediterranean country, an Eastern European country, So that's the plan for the years to come.
1: Yeah, while preparing for this interview today, I was thinking about all the things I do and if you could use this method. So it's a fun way to think about your work, to actually think about verbs.
0: Yes, I think it sort of enhances your awareness of what work actually is. That work is always things we do, things we do in various ways. I mean, you could add adjectives. To the method if you like, whether you perform your work in a skillful way or in a nice way or if that is not the case. But I think it's a very good way of sort of forcing yourself as a scholar to think very carefully about the sort of microeconomics of work, not to think of work as, you know, statistics with occupational titles and economic sectors and values, but think of it in terms of what people are actually doing.
1: Yes. Back to your project and some results or examples, you already talked about the difference in marital status, especially for women, that that is one finding in your research. What else have you found?
0: I think in general, the most important finding is really that if we look at all the data, we see that there is hardly any area of work where we don't find both men and women. I think that's the most important result because I think there has often been a tendency to to think that women and men did very different things and that women, on the whole, put in less work effort than men did. And often this is not really supported by an, any evidence. It's it's regarded as a sort of self-evident, almost biological fact that that women have the responsibility for small children, for children, and that means that they cannot work so much. And even though everyone, I think almost everyone, acknowledges that, well, of course, it is a form of work to take care of children and to cook and so on. But, but nevertheless, there is a very sort of persistent idea that you have very radical differences between men and women's work and which often is expressed in this idea that at the end of the day it's the husband that is the breadwinner and of course what the woman does in terms of work can be very important but at the end of the day it's the man who is the breadwinner but i think when we look at our data and we've grouped all work activities into 16 different categories so Agriculture and forestry is one category. Craft and construction is another. Care work is a third. Transport. And when we look at all these categories, the only category where we don't really find women is military work. In all other forms of work, we do find both women and men. I think that in itself sort of forces you to think again about these matters. Then, of course, if we look at each separate type of category or type of work, so agriculture and forestry, for instance, there are gender differences within that category. So men did more of soil preparation, women did more of animal husbandry. So there are gender differences. But the fact that both genders do appear in practically all forms of work is, I think, very important. So even if women were more common in the care sector, we do find men who carry out care work too. And of course, that's not surprising if we look at the 19th century, because then we're talking about doctors and and veterinaries. But even further back in time, we do find men who carry out various forms of, well, caring for sick people, sick animals, children, old people. So there's much more flexibility between the genders. So I think that's one important, perhaps the most important result.
1: So this conception that many people might have that in the old days things were more divided and women were clearly taking care of household and so on, that is not entirely correct?
0: No, it's not correct. As I said, there are certain forms of work where It's true that women did more and men less. So if we take housework as it is traditionally defined in modern society, like washing dishes, sweeping the floor, making beds, things like that, then there is no denying that women did that more than men. So for instance, we have not found one single example of a man who made the bed, but several examples of women who made the bed so that suggests that, of course, there are these differences, but it's also important to think of, well, how much time did housework then take for women as a whole? And what we see is that even if women did more housework than men did, housework occupied probably a quite small share of women's total time use. So it wasn't like they were at home, you know, cleaning and polishing and Making cakes all the day. so so housework was very limited, and what women did is better described if we look at what they did in, say, agriculture, craft, transport, too, etc.
1: Do you have an example from your that you found in the in the documents that you look at in the sources where you could see this very clearly that you didn't have that division?
0: I think one example that we found early on in an ecclesiastical court record from the 17th century, it was a case was about a tragic accident where a child had been hurt because this small child had had fallen into a boiling kettle in this household. They were boiling sausages in a kettle and the small child fell into the kettle and of course was very seriously burnt. And so the case came to this ecclesiastical court and they made an investigation and it turned out that the mother and the maidservant in the household, they were out doing hard physical work. And for that reason, they didn't have the time to look after the small child. So there was a young man instead who was sitting indoors and his main task was to make baskets. But they had assigned him the additional task of looking after this small child. And, well, of course, the information is quite sparse, so we don't know exactly if there was something special about this young man, like could be the case that maybe he was um, ill that day and for that reason wasn't out taking part in in other types of work. We don't know that. But we do know that, that he was expected to do these two things and he failed to look after the child So the child fell into the boiling kettle, and then the mother and the maidservant, they came running in and lifted the heavy kettle from the fire and rescued the baby or the small child, which also suggests that, I mean, in this case, it was these two women who first were out doing hard fiscal work, then came in, lifted off the kettle. So they were uh, apparently the ones who represented strength, bodily strength. And what is interesting is also how, how the court treated the case. So they clearly expected this young man to have taken responsibility for the child. So there was nothing in the verdict sort of reproaching the mother for not being there. So it was sort of evident from this case that, of course, the mother had to take care of her work tasks. So the whole responsibility was placed on the young man because he had been assigned this task. And there are other similar cases. Often these accidents, while being tragic, they are quite useful for the historian because they highlight situations and how responsibility was divided within households and families that seldom come to light otherwise. So there is another case also involving an accident with a child where the mother was away. She was in in the adjacent town working that day, and so the father was responsible for the child, but he too had to work. So he had left the child with his elderly relatives, and apparently they were not so good at handling children, so this boy was hurt. And once again, the court never reproached the mother for not having been there, taking care of the child, because it was self-evident that, of course, she had to be at work. So all the reproach was directed towards the father. You have been remiss because, of course, you too had to work, but then you should have made better arrangements for the child. You should have known that your elderly uncle and his wife were not suitable to take care of a small child. So that, I think, indirectly says something about the ways in which women's work were not only accepted, but sort of taken for granted and and respected.
1: Yeah, I was just thinking about the word respect here, that it's not even questioned that you leave your child.
0: No, exactly.
1: Yes, uh, it's interesting to hear more about this. You look at historic events and how things have been in the past, but how does gender and work today compare to your historic findings?
0: Well, I think that there is a lot in our findings that are in line with how things are organized today. I mean, today, as in the past, both spouses, both mother and father, as a rule, have to work. That's the situation in Sweden now, and it was the situation in the past. Very, very few people today are rich enough, if you like, to have one spouse who is not outworking, not contributing money to the household. And I think that's a, a long tradition, which means that today, as in the past, we have to somehow combine responsibility for children, for the home, for the family, with the uh, demands of the labor market. And of course, that doesn't play out in exactly the same way today as in the past. But I think the sort of fundamental conflict, if you like, between working and, um, well, what Marxists would call the fundamental conflict between production and reproduction. Maybe we don't use those words in exactly the same way, but there is some kind of conflict here that has often been a disadvantage to women. I think You have a similar kind of conflict across time that we can see how people try to handle this conflict in various ways. And that in the past as today, there were more possibilities of combining these things than I think people often tend to think today. I mean, today we have nurseries, small children go to daycare nurseries and schools. And of course, there were no nurseries in the early modern period. But actually, it was possible to buy childcare, So it wasn't like the mother and father were the only ones who could take care of children, neighbors, family members. And then most of all, as soon as children got up to a certain age, which wasn't very advanced, they had to start working too. So in a way, taking care of children and working alongside children was one way of of handling this conflict, if you like. And it's clear that there was a a gender aspect in the sense that little girls were often working together with their mothers or grown-up women, and little boys were working together with their fathers, which uh, is perhaps not that surprising, but that, of course, in itself... Shows that both men and women were involved in childcare, training of children. They were part of, of a system that presupposed child labor, if you like. So I think these flexible solutions that we have to juggle today is um, a long continuity in history.
1: So this word that I actually don't like too much, life puzzle, that's (laughs) that's nothing new.
0: (laughs) No, it's nothing new. I think this idea that many people have that in the past, it was the father who went out to earn the living of the family and the mother was at home to take care of the children. I mean, you do find examples of families who lived like that. But they're very few. They are restricted to a certain social class, social group, and to a probably very short period in time if we think of the whole historical process. So uh, maybe just a couple of decades, which is, of course, very little if we think of hundreds and thousands of years.
1: I always find it fascinating also how this is different in different countries. I'm from Germany originally, and there have a stronger housewife tradition, yeah. at least after the war. And there you can hear things like man, successful man saying, "My wife doesn't have to work." no implying they earn enough to yes. support the family.
0: Yeah, yes, I know, and, and I think in the uh, Anglo-Saxon world, you find that too. I think that's because it has become a, a sign of social Status and prestige. So, you can show social status and prestige and wealth in many ways. You can manifest your social position in many ways with, you know, fancy cars and a big house and nice clothes, and then being able to afford to have a wife that doesn't work is yet another example of manifesting wealth. So, I remember long ago I wrote a little essay. With the title, well, it's in in Swedish, but if I translate the title, it's Is it better when it's worse? (laughs) And this refers to this idea that in societies that have not been so immensely wealthy, like American society, for instance, or British society, early on developed huge wealth in certain social strata. And in such societies, maybe the gender arrangements tend to be worse for women, whereas in societies that are not so wealthy, they tend to be better simply because both men and women have to work. And even if there is no automatic connection between the fact that you work and social respect, but quite often there is some kind of connection between the fact that women perform a lot of work and how they are regarded. That's something I try to capture with this question, is it better, that is to say for women, if the economic situation is not so great? And I think often it is better (laughs) if society or, or, or the class that you belong to is not so immensely wealthy, because then you don't get this tendency To manifest wealth and boast about your wealth through your wife who sort of doesn't work, of course, everyone does something that is somehow important to the family's survival, but not performing paid work at least.
1: So you're using the verb-oriented method and as you said earlier, as you described, you collect your results in a database that is accessible to any researcher who wants to to know more about this. Yeah. If we go back to actually finding finding the verbs, uh, what sources do you use and what challenges are there to find out more?
0: As I said, the main source type that we use is court records. We do use some other types that also include verb-phrase descriptions of work like diaries and some other source types. But but the majority of all observations come from court records. Well, there we try to find court records that are legible, first of all, (laughs) since they are handwritten, and that sort of reflect what we think is the sort of average or the normal work patterns in that particular area. And then, of course, the people who extract the information from the court records, they have to be relatively qualified because you have to be able to read the handwriting. You have to have a fair amount of knowledge about the society from which these uh, records come, which is not anything special to this project that goes for all historical research that you can draw erroneous conclusions from the sources if you don't understand the, the context in which they were produced. So it's rather time-consuming and it also requires a lot of teamwork because, of course, it's not self-evident always what to pick out and what to extract and put into the database and what to to leave out because, of course, a, a protocol from, from a court proceeding has not been phrased with the intention of providing us with information. So often there are lots of tricky cases where we have to think carefully about whether it should be included or not. And not least, it's important in all research to be consistent, to apply the same definition of work throughout. So it's uh, work that really requires teamwork, both because it's a labor intensive, and because it's better for the quality if several pairs of eyes look at these cases. So I think that's been an interesting part of this project, that it has really been conducive to using more collaborative methods than is often the case in the humanities and in history in general. And in fact, that was one of the Goals I had when I started this project. I mean I I had three goals. The first one was the the one that we have talked a lot about, increasing knowledge about men's and women's work in the past and in a longer-term perspective. And the second one was to create a database of enduring value and importance that could be reused by others. And the third objective was to test whether it's possible to organize research in the humanities in a manner that is more similar to what you do in science, to have a sort of common agenda, common set of questions, common definitions, common methods, common approach, and then to work together, because no single person could have collected all this information that we have collected together, no single person could have drawn out all the conclusions that we have been able to draw out together, because... It's not possible for one single person to sort of process all the information and not even with the help of a very, well, modern and tailor-made database is it possible. You have to be several people who, who collaborate from the beginning to the end. So I think that's something that has been really very rewarding for me to see that, yeah, it is possible to work in a different way. It's not so individualistic.
1: When you say teamwork, do you mean also different disciplines coming together and looking at the same material from different angles? or?
0: Yes. I mean, we have primarily been various types of historians, ordinary historians, economic historians, history of science and ideas. But we had a geographer in the group at an early stage and now we have someone from the... Uh, University of Agricultural Sciences, so someone with a PhD in agricultural history. And, of course, you can think of other ways of making the project more interdisciplinary, if you like. But, of course, given that the core tasks, if we speak in terms of verb phrases, the core tasks really are to read historical documents and to mark in historical documents whenever work is mentioned, that, of course, sort of, to some extent, delimits who can take part, because you have to be able to read these sources, obviously, otherwise you cannot contribute to the project.
1: And back to your database, if I've understood it correctly, this was an early decision to build the database and one of the goals. Yeah. And... You did this also a little bit before digital humanities was a thing, maybe, or?
0: Yes. You said that the project started in 2010, but actually the first grant I got was in 2008, and that was an infrastructure grant to start building the database. So the project as such really started in 2008. And I think at that point in time, certainly in in Sweden, the word... Digital humanities was not on everyone's lips, and I don't think abroad either so this is a a little bit of a buzzword that has become very prominent in in the last couple of years, but in those days, one didn't really talk about you know using modern technologies of, of various sorts as digital humanities but i I do think that the gender and work project is an early example of, of uh, historical research that builds very much on, on modern digital technology. It was very important, or it has been very important throughout the project, that we early on established a very good relationship with the Cedar unit at Umeå University, which was formerly known as the Demographic Database, because they have very highly qualified system developers there, and also historians who work there. So I contacted one of them and said, can we come and visit you and and describe this idea that we have? Sure, they said. And then we came there and and we talked about this database that we would like to have tailor-made for us. And they said, well, we think we can do it. And of course, it's taken a lot of time and it has cost a lot of money, but I must say that it's turned out very well, and I'm particularly happy about the fact that we've stayed very good friends throughout this project, because I think if we are doing complicated projects together, and and in a way this is a sort of interdisciplinary project because it's historians and these computer scientists almost who try to talk to each other, which is not always that easy because we have different languages, professional languages. But I think on the whole, it's been uh, very rewarding and, and I think it's been great for us. And as I understand it, this database has been a source or is a source of pride for the people who built it in Umio. So that's also great, I think, because, I mean, talking about work in general, I think it's an important aspect of work that... You should be allowed to, to get respect for your work and preferably also feel pride about what you have done. And, and I think in that sense, this project has been very good for several of us who have been involved, that we have received a lot of appreciation for it.
1: And you followed all these principles almost of open data and um, FAIR, how it's called, findable, accessible, interoperable and reusable almost before... That was also a big discussion in in the sciences.
0: Exactly, yes. And that's also something that has become a buzzword in the last couple of years. And I mean, the Swedish Research Council emphasized how important it is to follow this principle. And there is a group here at this university, and I guess at all Swedish universities, trying to implement these principles of fair principles. But as I said, I think from the very beginning, our project has conformed to the FAIR principles by having the database open. So it it is findable, accessible, and reusable, and to some extent also interoperable. I think interoperable means that different databases can sort of speak to each other directly. Well, may require some programming, (laughs) but it shouldn't be impossible to make it speak to other databases
1: infrastructures for research for science the first thing that springs to mind i'm a little bit biased because i come from natural sciences but the thing that springs to mind is of course big infrastructures like the max or ess or um, infrastructures for life science for medicine or other so in the humanities what kind of infrastructures do you need and what kind of support do you also need to get them going and then also keep them running so to say
0: Well, I I think this is a very important question and I think it's important to have a definition of research infrastructure that does not in and of itself exclude everything that people in the humanities and also social sciences are, are using. In Sweden, we have this concept of research infrastructure of national interest. That's what the Swedish Research Council wants to support. Which is fine in a way, but I think at the same time, the definition of a research infrastructure of national interest is very much modeled on these huge infrastructures that you mentioned in a way that makes it very difficult for a new infrastructure that is sort of still in the cradle, if you like, to grow. I think the Bank of Sweden Tercentenary Foundation, Riksbankens Jubileumsfond, they support research infrastructures that are a bit smaller, but nevertheless very important. And I think that they fulfill a very important role here precisely because the Swedish Research Council has decided to define research infrastructure in in a very specific manner. Because, I mean, of course, people in the humanities have always needed and have always had research infrastructures. And here I'm thinking of libraries, archives, museums. I mean, there are libraries and archives and museums that are, well, nearly 2,000 years old, and definitely hundreds and hundreds of years old. So in a way, I think that the humanities started to have research infrastructures long before scientists started to think of the necessity of having big data or or the social sciences for that matter. So I think it's, in a way it's a bit tragic that sort of we have suddenly been left behind simply because of the ways in which research infrastructure is defined. I also think that it partly has to do with the way in which responsibility is accorded to different ministries. So The universities and everything that has to do with universities are under the Ministry of Education, whereas these old-fashioned infrastructures like libraries, uh, museums and archives, they are under the Ministry of Culture, which makes it difficult to sort of take a, a consolidated grip on the whole area. So I think it would be really good if... One could think about these old and the new infrastructures together and recognize that, well, first of all, that people in the humanities have long used infrastructures, but then not digital infrastructures, often handwritten infrastructures. And secondly, that we too now are in a situation where we need to be able to build new infrastructures that, of course, then have to be digital
1: So with your own experience now from the gender and work database, working with that, what would your advice be to scholars planning to do something similar, like collecting data and building up a database within the humanities?
0: Well, I think it's important to have a a good idea, (laughs) perhaps a rather simple idea. So I I think that's one of the strengths of this project, that in a way the idea is very simple. Everyone understands what the basic idea is to collect these verb phrases that describe work and to store them in a database. I mean, it's easy for funders to understand. It's easy for the people in UMIO who built the database to understand. So I think having a a strong but at the same time rather simple idea is good, I think. And then also to establish uh, good relations with the people who are going to help you develop this facility to develop that relationship early on and work hard to sustain that relationship because along the road there have been some problems with the building of this database but I think in our case both parties have been intent of this must succeed we we must be able to carry this through and without you know becoming enemies or anything like that It's important to have a long-term perspective and not
1: give up. Is there anything else you would like to say about the Gender and Work Project?
0: Well, what I would like to say is that I think very often I'm the one who sort of becomes the person who represents the project, but it's very important to say that I could never have done this on my own and I have fantastic colleagues and collaborators in the Department of History and uh, I would particularly like to mention Jonas Lindström without whom this project would never have come this far and others too of course but I want to mention his name in particular
1: You were a scholar here at SCAS during the spring of 2016. How was it to be here?
0: Well, it was fantastic, of course. I loved every minute I was here. Actually, I finished a book, a monograph, a small monograph, but still a monograph, while I was here, and I would not have been able to do that if I hadn't been here. So it's this peace and quiet that being here gives you which I think is very important. I mean, we've talked now a lot about teamwork and doing things together and talking and discussing, and all of that is very important to any form of research, I think. And it's important to break away from this individualistic work model that has often been so prominent in the humanities. But still, I think you have to acknowledge that now and then you really have to be allowed to just sit on your own and just focus on the problem and on writing. So that's exactly what I got from that term here at SCAS. And so that book would never have been written if I hadn't had the opportunity of being here. That was really great. And of course, lots of interesting people around that you can talk to at lunch and at the seminars. So I think it's important that you strike a balance between interacting with the other SCAS fellows and at the same time that you're allowed to be on your own and, and just focus and think and write.
1: You already said it. You have other people around you here at SCAS also who come from different disciplines. So what was your experience of that, to interact with people who can have a quite different background compared to yourself?
0: That was positive Although not entirely new, I mean, if you are interested in intellectual work, as I guess everyone who is in academia is interested in intellectual work, then you're interested in talking to people who who do other things because you're always curious to learn new things. So I don't think that in itself is something that characterizes SCAS. I think universities themselves provide many opportunities for meeting people from from other disciplines. But, of course, maybe it's the combination of meeting people with different disciplinary backgrounds, coming from different countries, and then that together with having the peace and quiet to both talk and then mull things over and reflect. Uh, I think that's maybe the winning concept here, having all these things together and at the same time.
1: Thank you very much for joining me and our listeners on this podcast, SCUS Talks. Thank you. And thank you for listening to SCUS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. You have heard Maria Ogien, professor in history at Uppsala University, about her ongoing project Gender and Work. This was the second episode in our theme Gender. In the previous episode, within the same theme, I talked to Susan Peterson, Governor Morris Professor of British History at Columbia University, about her current book project, Balfours and Love and Trouble. And this was episode 31. If you're interested in the history of work and labor, you might also want to listen to episode 14, where Andreas Eckert talks about labor in post-colonial Africa. Currently, we feature the following topics developmental issues and human rights, Latin America, gender, and also genetics and evolution. The list of podcast episodes and themes is constantly growing, reflecting the multi- and interdisciplinary research environment at SCAS. We started off in the summer of 2020 with the coronavirus pandemic and went on to also feature the study of languages, diversity, global governance, the brain, Africa, life in outer space, life science, infrastructures and Asia, citizen and state relations. Before the summer, we also published a new episode of SCUS Talk Spotlight, this time about the symposium Opening the Ivory Tower Wide, which was held at SCUS in May 2022. The symposium aimed at discussing and exemplifying how academic progress reaches society and makes a wider difference, but also the challenges for this process. I met with some of the speakers and we discussed science communication, innovation, clinical impact, academic freedom and much more. As always, we are very happy if you can recommend SCAS Talks to your colleagues and friends. Subscribe to us and you won't miss any new content. SCAS Talks is available on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify and most podcast apps. I would like to thank Maria Ågren once again for talking to me and thanks to you for listening. Bye for now.